Mildred, the church gossip, self-appointed monitor of all church morals, kept sticking her nose into other people's business. Several members did not appreciate all of her extracurricular activities, but they were afraid of Mildred and dare not really say anything about her. But she made a mistake, however, when she accused George, a new member, of being a drunk. She saw his old pickup park for a long afternoon in front of the town's only bar, and she emphatically told George and several others that everyone seeing the truck there would know exactly what he was doing. His car, his truck was parked right in front of the bar. He's a drunk. Now, George is a man of few words, stared at her for a moment, and just turned and walked away. He didn't explain, he didn't defend, he didn't deny, he said nothing. Later that evening, George quietly parked his pickup right in front of Mildred's house <laughs> and walked home and left it there all night long. There is within each one of us an innate desire to direct, correct, and criticize the lives of our family and our friends, overlooking our own faults and foibles. We focus on the flaws found in those around us. Ignoring that two by four in our own eye, we want to help our neighbor get that speck or splinter out of his. What was true when Paul penned this epistle to the church at Rome 2,000 years ago is still true in windy West Texas today. What exactly is Paul saying in Romans 14? To whom is he saying it? And why is he saying it? We still have, we're in our sermon series from the epistle to the church in the capital city, and we still have ringing behind this particular chapter that overarching message found in Romans 12, 18. If possible, and as much as it depends upon you, live at peace, be at peace with all men. Well, the first thing I want you to see is we are to let God be both the judge and the jury. Verses 1 through 6. We're to let God be both the judge and the jury. Look at verse 1. Now, except the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak only eats vegetables. The one who eats does not, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. 
And he who eats does so for the Lord. For the Lord, to the Lord he gives thanks. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Who are the weak? And what is this verbiage about eating or not eating vegetables? And what does it mean to observe a day? The weakness occurs in Romans 14 when something that need not be shunned is shunned by a believer for the sake of his own delicate conscience. A weakness occurs when something that need not be shunned is shunned by a believer for the sake of his own delicate conscience despite the fact there aren't any real restrictions against that placed upon him by the Christ. Look at verse 14 of Romans 14 to confirm this interpretation. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Some of us, many of us, have intense, persistent, deeply rooted beliefs that regard something is wrong when actually in God's eyes it's neither here nor there. And to break our own self-imposed or family-imposed or tradition-imposed taboos is to risk shattering our faith because we can't, we can't discern between the two. Our own faith, which is still in the formation trying to find freedom in Christ. When those who found freedom in Christ welcome the sensitive into the fold, he's saying in Romans 14, they're not to use that welcome as a pretext for hammering the weak, forcing them to act against their own conscience or deep-seated convictions. Welcome the weak, but don't pass judgment on their opinions, he's saying. Verse 2, notice, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Now, Paul is certainly not against eating your fruits and vegetables. We all know the story of Daniel, the one delivered from the lion's den. He excels, grows strong on veggies and water. It's not a health issue. It's a scruples concern. In fact, Daniel was held up a hero precisely because he would not defile himself with the pagan's rich food and wine, but instead he, he ate only vegetables and drank water because of Daniel's faithfulness in consuming only what was allowed by the covenant of God. God delivers Daniel and Daniel grows strong. Or in the book of Judith, which is in the Catholic Old Testament, not in your Bible, Judith is a heroine because she would not eat or drink the pagan food or wine lest it be an offense to God. Her victory over the enemy is ascribed to her detailed observance of the dietary laws. Or bringing it back to our own Protestant scriptures, we think about Peter who declares in Acts 10 that he has never eaten anything impure or ritually unclean. See, there was clearly a Jewish aversion to eating that which was improperly butchered. Was it a Jewish butcher who prepared my meat? A Jew might ask. 
They had a concern about eating meat that had been defiled because the meat had been sacrificed to a pagan idol in a pagan temple. They weren't sure about the history of that piece of meat. They didn't want to accidentally consume any animal that was forbidden by the Levitical law. They want to be sure that the meat was not slain in any way that violated the law or ritual restrictions. There was a lot on the Jewish mind when it came to eating a piece of meat, and they were worried. And so some of them just became self-declared vegetarians to avoid the appearance of evil. And yet Peter, remember in Acts, on the rooftop, received that vision from God. The sheet descends from heaven with all sorts of creatures and animals upon it. And God says three times, Peter, arise and eat. Peter, arise and eat. Peter, arise and eat. We learn there in Acts, abstaining from certain meats to observe the law's restrictions have been so deeply ingrained in the Jews for years that the practice of their conscience would not allow them to abandon their long-held principles. Peter just couldn't do it until the Lord continually commanded. They felt it necessary to avoid any appearance of evil. Now, let me take you on a trip back to Rome, back to the first century, there's pagan temples everywhere, and the pagan temples are a center of the community. There's a restaurant associated with the temple. The meat is sacrificed on the pagan altar. Then it goes to the back door to the pagan restaurant. is served meat that's been dedicated to a God that's not the Jewish God. In fact, most of the meat markets, meat markets connected right there to the temple, meat markets throughout the city were supplied by the meat of the all the sacrifices that occurred to the pagan gods of the pagan temples. And so the Jew just says, you know, if you don't buy your meat from the kosher market, you just can't be sure where it's been, what kind of meat it might be. You see, the pagan temples and their meat market was just part. It was sacrificed, processed, packaged, and served throughout the city. It was a money-making business for the pagan temples. And so the Jews asked the question, how can I be sure that this meat's not impure when I prepare it for my family? The Jew just couldn't. Be sure. Unsure of those Gentile meat markets, many of the Jews had simply just become vegetarians. They wanted to eat their meal with a clear conscience and make sure it was properly prepared meat. But it wasn't just a matter of mealtime scruples. It's, it's more than that, isn't it? In verse 5, it says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul most likely here again is referring to Jewish practices. Some Jewish Christians continue to observe all the Jewish holidays and festivals and holy days and others would not. For Paul, even for Paul, it was a matter of indifference. What mattered most was whatever they decided, they did it in a way that honored the Lord. If they kept the festival, it was to honor the Lord. If they had liberty in Christ and didn't keep the festival, they did it to honor the Lord. 
Now, someone lounging around on Sunday morning saying, Paul says, one day doesn't matter from another day. He is not saying treat the day of the resurrection like any other day. It's not that. Paul was making a reference to the busy Jewish calendar that was filled with countless observable occasions. In the middle of this conversation about conscience in regard to holy days and kosher meat, look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? In other words, let God himself be both judge and jury. For some reason, we can get awfully busy, can we not? Judging other folks and forgetting about our own faults. Paul's primary concern is to impart standards for when his fellow believers must treat one another in good conscience. When someone chooses something you think is wrong but is not clearly wrong in Scripture, matters such as dietary restrictions or festival day observances, Paul is saying, why don't you let God be the judge? Now, let me say quickly, Paul is not calling upon us to withhold all moral discernment in regard to our brother's behavior. There are other letters and other passages. In fact, in Romans 15, he's going to urge us to watch after the behavior of our brother, to admonish one another. And we know from his other letters to other places that Paul's not asking the church to cast a blind eye to sin, those things which are clearly wrong. Don't hide your sin behind Romans 14. But he is saying, in every case, on every occasion, you would do well first to focus on your own sins and not the sins of your neighbor. Behind this idea that we're to let the Christ or the Lord be the judge is this idea that Jesus is the Lord. He is the kurios. That word is used over and over again in Romans 14. It's used two times in verse 4, only once in your English translation, but in the Greek text, the word master is also the word Lord. Two times in verse 4, three times in verse 6, three times in verse 8, in verse 11, and verse 14, over and over again, Christ is the Lord. You are not the Lord. Let the Lord be the judge and the jury. In fact, your judgment of Christ's servant is of no consequence. Worse yet, when we wedge our way in judging our neighbor rather than focusing on our own faults, we demote the Christ from his lordship. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4 as I read. Paul says something similar there. It's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and each man's praise will come to him from God. 
Paul's saying, let the Lord be the judge. In fact, Paul says, I can look at my own life, and if I don't even know anything wrong in my own life, that doesn't make me innocent. It only matters what the Lord thinks of my life and my conduct. And let the Lord on that day judge each of his own servants. Let God discipline his own children. Don't point your finger and say, if he were my son, i tell you what I would do. He's not your son. It's not your place to tell him what to do. Do not judge another servant. Let the creator be the creator. Let us all be creation. There's the second thing, verses 7 through 12. Recognize that the final judgment is the only judgment that counts. Recognize that the final judgment is the only judgment that counts. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now I want to take you back to a setting that might occur in the first century. Imagine a Christian with a strict conscience, a Jewish believer, whose background and upbringing and temperament all inclined him for, toward a very serious view of his moral responsibilities. And as far as he can see, the church in Rome is surrounded by pagans who worship idols and pagan temples. And to him, he's just decided he's going to eat vegetables because he doesn't know where the meat from the meat market came from. So he's done with the meat. And then he notices a woman from his Roman house church She claims to be a Christian, but she is buying meat from the meat market that's back right up to the pagan temple. How appalling. She's compromising herself. She's compromising her family, he thinks. The the strict Jewish Christian condemns that woman in his heart. And yet the woman on in her defense, has been taught the deep and rich truth that the one true God, the creator and redeemer of all things, the whole world belongs to him, including every piece of meat that you might ever buy or cook. And she knows good and well that outward restrictions about what you may not touch or taste or handle, they don't really bring holiness inside as the Christ is taught. And she's tired of being snapped at by other people in the Roman church who are criticizing her and they don't learn the freedom in Christ that she has. It's the most liberating gospel lesson, and she's frustrated with them, and she despises people who put their nose in her business. You see how this could occur? They're both natural reactions then and now, coming from a grasp of one aspect of theological truth, Both found their positions in the fact that the Lord is the Lord before them, and before the Lord, every Christian lives, dies, stands, or falls. 
What Paul is saying, why condemn a brother or a sister when each one of us on our own day will stand before God, the judgment seat, and answer for our own conduct? I can be sure of absolutely one thing. On judgment day, God's not going to ask me why you did what you did. God's not going to ask you why I did what I did. God's going to ask Howie why Howie did what Howie did. You won't be answering for another. Paul's saying, you better worry about yourself. I call it the devil's distraction. The devil is really smart, isn't he? The devil never tells you that sin's okay. He tells you sin is horrible and you need to hunt for it at your neighbor's house. You see what he's doing? Look at the sins of others, Satan says. If the devil can get me to focus on your sin and you to focus on my sins, your faults and foibles, you focus on my sins and shortcomings, then he's trapped us both. Oh, focus on sin, Satan says. Focus on the sins of your family and your friends. And then he knows that no one will walk righteously before God. Paul concludes that powerful passage from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Then verse 12, he ends with one more reminder. Stop judging one another. Because each one of you will give an account of your neighbor. No, each one of you will give an account of himself to God. Worry about yourself, Paul is preaching. Here's the third thing I want you to see in Romans 14. Limit your freedom for the good of the group. Limit your freedom for the good of the group. There are some things that I probably could do that I shouldn't do because it might hurt you. There's some things that I probably could do in my freedom in Christ that I shouldn't do because it might hurt or offend you. Well, let's look at this section here, verses 13 through 23. I won't read it all, but let's begin in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, who pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food, he says. You could do it. Perhaps you shouldn't do it because it might cause your brother to stumble. Are we going to insist, verse 15, our own rights and freedom? 
So we would destroy one in their faith, someone for whom Christ has died and risen again? Is your exercising your freedom and your rights more important than the brother for whom Christ has died? Paul's asking. Rather, verse 19, why don't you pursue things that make peace and build one another up? Insisting on your own rights is only going to cause a ruckus in the church. What Paul says in verse 14 that nothing in and of itself is clean or unclean is an absolute shocking statement for a Pharisee to make. The Pharisee, Paul was well-versed in all the purity laws, and he classified things and times and persons as pure and impure, and he focused on what could be eaten and how it had to be prepared and with whom you could eat it. He knew all the rules and regulations. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But that Pharisee says in Christ that nothing is unclean, a stunning about face. Peter had that vision, didn't he? What God is called clean, no man shall call impure. But Paul says, hold on. If it really bothers someone's conscience to eat certain food, then for them it is a sin because they're not doing it with a clear conscience. What Paul is saying is this, that in that first century church, the Jews could keep on being Jews and they could observe whatever dietary restrictions or festival days they wanted to observe. It was okay for the Jews to be Jews and to be Christians. And he was also saying it was okay for the Gentiles. They didn't have to become Jews and watch all the Jewish scruples in order to be a follower of Christ. He says, they're both accepted by God. Don't ever allow your enlightenment to injure another. Don't do that which tears down in the body of Christ. Do that which builds up and brings peace. So there you have it, Gladys Kravitz. <laughs> Close the curtains and keep your eyes in your own house. Or social media gossips who gander at everyone's pages, posts, tweets, and pics, searching for that sensational find of an uncovered sin. Don't be misled by the devil's distractions. Trying to get you to focus on me and me to focus on you. Worry? about yourself. Surprise in heaven. A dream death came the other night and heaven's gate swung wide. An angel with a halo bright ushered me inside. And there to my astonishment stood folks I judged and labeled as quiet and fit of little worth and spiritually disabled. Indignant words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise no one had expected me. <laughs> Let us pray. Oh God, may we not be fooled by the devil's diversion of worrying about everybody else's garage when ours is full of clutter. We're uniquely gifted to see everyone else's sin but our own.
And it's not a spiritual gift. Oh God, help us to examine our own hearts and our own minds. To realize that sin is serious. We're not to tear down our brother. But we're to build him up. Help us, God, to realize that we're not to judge the servant of another. That our fellow church members are servants of God, not our servants. And God shall be their judge on that day as he will be ours. Oh God, I pray this morning if there's someone who's seen the grace of God, someone who's been trapped by, well, neither here nor there rules or restrictions, find freedom and faith of the Christ crucified and resurrected. Or the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.